HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Paul Hobbs. We'll talk about the world of wine with Paul. We'll taste a Hobbs Cab Sauve and a Hillican Hobbs Riesling for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Paul Hobbs hails from upstate New York, or grew up in upstate New York, with his 10 siblings, on a farm and orchards. At one point, one taste of a sweet sauterne with his dad helped launch his love and interest in wine. Paul attended Notre Dame to study medicine, but his dad encouraged him to head west and study wine, where Paul attended UC Davis. He went on to work with Robert Mondavi and at Opus One, eventually setting in Sonoma County, where he opened his own eponymous winery. Paul is now involved with wineries in the Finger Lakes, Argentina, Patagonia, Spain, France, and the birthplace of wine, Armenia. Paul Hobbs is truly a global winemaker, but more importantly, curious, a visionary, style icon, importer, and sought-after consultant. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Paul. Hey, thank you, Sam. Good to be here. 
That's quite an intro. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Props to you. All right, we're talking to Paul live in New York City. Paul's doing a market trip, so we got a chance to uh, sit down and grab him in person. We're at the offices of Colangelo and Partners. Um, Paul, like I said off air, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> so I think I want to concentrate on more recent projects, if that's okay. Sure. But I have a feeling we'll work our way back mm. um, to everything because there's some exciting stuff going on. But as I mentioned in the intro, um, I mentioned a few things. I don't want to spend a lot of time about family history, but just tell me a little about that family farm, that taste of Dikim, <laughs> and obviously your dad's encouragement, You know, which really kind of set the stage for what you're doing. Mm, very much so. Yeah. Well, you know, the the <clears throat> we were teetotalers, as a matter of fact. Jeez. And this is a this makes it even more interesting, I think, because you know, my mother had made a pact with my father in the fifties when we were, you know, they they were married, and and uh, I, she lost her her brother to a drowning accident uh-huh. in Lake Cayuga near Ithaca, and so I think my mother thought there might have been some connection with alcoholic beverages and. So she shut it down. Shut it down entirely. Wow. So my father broke that pack uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, and the way he did it was to to serve this beautiful kind of yellow orange liquid uh, in Dixie cups. Saw turn. And we didn't. We thought it was fruit juice. In fact, we didn't realize it fermented fruit juice. Wait, you thought before when you started <laughs> when tasting it, it, it was a form yeah. of a fruit juice. And my mother said, this is the best juice I've ever tasted. <laughs> really? She bought it. Right <laughs> so my father was feeling you know, bullish, like this is going well. He had, he had gone up to um, Premier Liquors in Buffalo or Tondawanda, and uh, the wine expert there advised him how to put wine on the family table without his wife's radar detecting it. That's <laughs> essentially was the strategy. So that's why the Dixie Cup's the whole deal. Well, but we got thrown out of the house that night, um, and my father really told me about what his game plan was. So wait, what, how does he come up with a Dekim? You know, that's like... It had to be I, sweet. I mean, Cab Bordeaux, <laughs> you figure not... So the sweet was the thing. Key but, for my but, but why not like Coute, Sudara, you know, I mean, top of the game. Yeah, I think, well, in those days it wasn't probably, Expensive. I think it's a $30 bottle of wine then. And it's a 19, it was 1962 Kim. And I still, if you come to the winery, I, my father saved the bottle. And so later after I started the winery and so on, um, he told me that he had the bottle. So if you come to see us in California, the so launched my career is there. The two of you kind of looked at each other and said, there's something going on here. Because obviously <laughs> it won you over. But, you know, and to my last point, your dad got to a point where he said, I'm thinking, Paul, maybe you should do something with wine. I mean, well, Notre initially- Dame Med School's no slouch, you know, <laughs> setup, right? Well, Honestly, I think my father was not thinking that far ahead at that, at that particular moment. He had been to the Finger Lakes and conferred and befriended Dr. Constantine Frank and Herman Wiemer. And so he would come back and regale us with his stories of the, his time with them. And he was feeling it was essential to convert what we were in a commodity business, growing fruit orchards and mostly apples, but we had other things too. And so my father 
felt that it was important that we convert some of our orchards to vineyards. And he had me in mind for doing that. Ah. So I was the guy that, comes that liked the detail that, that he thought, well, viticulture requires this kind of discipline and, and organizations. And my father thought, well, that's, that's something I should, should do. But later, as I was still a... I was just entering uh, Notre Dame, so I was a fr- I w- then became a freshman there and studied pre-medicine and so on. But over the course of the ne- all those summers, I was planting vineyard, and I got to know more and more. And just by a quirky chance, after getting acceptance to med school I, in my final semester... So you finished Notre Dame, applied to med school, got in, but you're coming back east and planting, helping your dad... During, is, the, during the, my, my undergraduate right. work. This is in California. You're coming back, back undergrad. Ca- okay. to New York. I got it. Yeah. And so um, a professor, I took some botany. I took two plant courses my final semester since I was already in med school. I thought I studied plants. And it turned out that my botany professor worked under Brother Timothy at the Novitiate in Napa Valley. And he had a wine appreciation course. And so he is... The one that between it was him, Father McGrath, and my father uh, got to know each other over the telephone because he asked me if I would be a part of his wine appreciation course. I told him no, my mother wouldn't allow that. <laughs> and so, and so he, he said, "Well, what about your father?" And I said, "Well, here's my dad's phone number. Call him up." And my father said, "That's no problem. He can be, but just don't tell his mother." <laughs> and so that's and so the two of them talked a little bit and started thinking about Davis and and California. And that's how I ended up out there. So, Davis, do you get another undergrad degree? Undergrad degree? Master's. You yeah. did get a master's because yeah. you already had an undergrad. yeah, yeah. undergraduate. I didn't know if you had to start all over. All right. So that brings you out to California. Um, I'll speed things up. But like I said in the intro, you got out there, you finished Davis, you were lucky to hook up with Mondavi, you were charter person on the Opus Project, which is, you know, a big deal on its own. I mean, that's a story. Um, And then in the early 90s, I know I'm jumping ahead, um, you establish your own winery with much success in Sonoma. I'm just curious, you know, Napa's pretty slamming. How do you wind up in Sonoma? Well, part of it had to do with finances. Okay. (laughs) Napa was a lot more. Even then. Even then it was. Okay. So, you know, I started dreaming of setting up my own winery uh, in the late 80s. And I was working at CIMI at the time. Um, and I so was you, in, you, I, Wait, I didn't mean to interrupt. So mm-hmm. you did Mondavi, Opus, and CIMI. I and left that. seven years at Mondavi with right. Opus came in. And then I moved over to Healdsburg and CIMI Winery. Right. Um, and I spent six years there. But during the course of my tenure there... Uh, they became part of the LVMH group, ah. the Louis Vuitton Moet Hennessy. So you see this big business thing fall right in front of you. And I thought, that's really exciting. Um, what a great opportunity to learn about a multinational and the world's largest luxury company. So here's a great segue, okay? This was my next question, coincidentally. At what point do you realize that you wanted to make wine around the world, globally? So that was kind of a click right there, the simi you know, hero guys. So tell me how, you know, what that does to you. And Well, when LVMH was formed, I was kicked up into the boardroom. In a, in From other words, Simi? I, was, I became an officer. 
Ah. Um, and so, and that meant I was spending too, far too much time. I was in my mid thirties, and I was thinking, I'm spending too much time in the boardroom and HR Eight. meetings and all kinds of business meetings, and I didn't have time for my re- my real passion. It was to be in the vineyard and the winery. How and, long was that? You know, bump up to corporate a year, almost less? immediate. No, but how long were you doing it? Well, I, until I, I stayed at CME for six years, so it was about two or three years. But okay, so I joined in '85, and that happened in '87, '88. It was still fun; I enjoyed it. But then I got the itch to go look for other things. So that's that's what I can I confer with my father, thinking, you know, where should I go? I've worked at two great places, but I need to start. This is probably a good moment if I'm going to do my own thing. Um, so, and that's what took me to South America. Okay, so the LVMH exposes you to global branding. Mm. You go in the corporate suite, you don't love it, and you got to expand, and your thoughts of expansion go outside of the U.S., which is great. Um, why Argentina? <laughs> it isn't entirely serendipitous. What's the serendipity? I mean, set me up on that. Well, yeah. So I was mostly, my father was thinking, go to Europe. Right. That that would have, with LVMH. Yes. Stay in Europe, learn. You know, that would be a great opportunity. But I, in some ways, felt Western Europe's already done, and they're not that welcoming. And so I wanted to go someplace where there was a need and where my work might make a difference. And Chile was just coming on the horizon. So my goal was to visit Chile and to see if there was an opportunity for me to work there. But I kind of, this is, this is March of 88, I made my first foray into Chile, um, invited or hosted by one of my former classmates at Davis, who is now a professor at the University of Santi- in Santiago, huh? at the Catholic University. So... Marcelo Kogan organized a week of visits for me. I mistakenly invited another classmate friend, Catena, from Argentina to join me, not unaware, totally unaware that that was a faux pas. Which Catena? Jorge Catena, Nicholas Catena's younger brother. Oh, is that Laura's brother? Laura's would be his un- her uncle. Her uncle. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm thinking down. Okay. <laughs> So that would be Laura's. Yeah. So that was this is '88. Go for Chile, meet an Argentinian, meet a Catena, and, and meet Nicolas. But the only reason I end up in Argentina on that trip is because my host uh, basically disowned me <laughs> because I couldn't get rid of Catena. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> he had come over, but you know the Falkland Islands. There was still tension between the two countries. Yeah. I did not put that all together when I invited Katana. So we drove over to the Andes, and then I met the story is basically I met Nicholas in Buenos Aires. We formed a, a, an association where I was going to build the, what everybody knows today is the Katana program. Well, so well, I was the architect of that. Let's talk about that. Um, you know, I, I, I actually visited my son worked for the Katanas for a year. Oh. 10 years ago, helped them launch their social media, worked at the one before any of that was oh. a thing. And we toured wineries and we went to Vina Cobos, which we'll talk about. Um, 
but I have a good sense for that. But I, I think one of the things, I don't know if it's lost, but I don't know if it gets discussed enough, is that, you know, the Catanas had a huge hand in bringing Malbec to prominence. Certainly Nicholas and Laura were ambassadors, sold the brand, but... To get there, you have to have kind of a product, and you were really in the trenches early on, I guess, relationship, encouragement, you know, ideas. Talk to me about those things because that really, I mean, they're a good winery as far as product and farming, you know, and I think you had a heavy hand in that. Tell me that. Well, I began my consulting there, and I I spent a lot of time uh, beginning in 89, and um, I I had never worked with Malbec, but I was very curious about it. And so the why Malbec question is curiosity. Yeah. So nothing more. Yeah. It's like this is what they do here. I'm curious. Let's go. Malbec was considered a low end grape in Argentina. It was used for blending. They were in the 70s, they were pulling out old vines, but it, they were growing it. I, I, I just felt the way they were growing the variety was, was the problem. And so I was curious, well, what would happen if you restrict the irrigation and you farmed it as a noble variety? And I knew a little bit about its history from my university, so, but I had no direct experience. So Nicholas was totally against it. He only wanted to focus on the noble varieties, Chardonnay from, you know, of Burgundy and of nobility and, and Cabernet yeah. Sauvignon. And that's what he, he had me focused on those. But the good thing was for me is that Nicholas lived in Buenos Aires. And so that gave me the opportunity to quietly work on Melbeck because he wouldn't allow it had he known that. With, I, without him walking around at night. And so we just made it in a corner of the winery. Yeah. And a, his vineyard manager, Pedro Marchevsky, was all for it. So he, he was willing to do the work because he was the lead guy. And he, he said, we can, he bought in. So he was willing to cut back the irrigation to reformat the plant. And what so are we, we talking about size wise? Like a hectare or so? Or yeah, a couple, three couple? hectares. We okay. made 10 barrels, basically. Okay. <laughs> but we brought the U.S. press in March of 1993 to launch Catena wines in the U.S. They were not yet in any other country, they weren't, they weren't in Argentina. So we launched Chardonnay, and so there were Tom Stockley, Gerald Boyd, and some other top guys. There were like a handful, four or five folks that that Billington distributors, who were the importers, brought. And so we showed them the Chardonnay, and Nicholas was standing in the back, and I was working with the press, and we were just tasting from barrels because we hadn't bottled the wine yet. And I could, I looked back to see how Nicholas was feeling about how things were going. I guess a big smile on his face. So. I, and the, the press was very favorable to the Chardonnay. So I said, well, I've got one other thing I'd like to show you. Nicholas didn't know you he were didn't know what it was. Pull it out. Okay. <laughs> so you Nicholas looked at me, what are you doing? <laughs> okay. So what happens? So what happens is Tom Stockley, who was writing for the Seattle Times, wrote an article, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And he basically put Nicholas on the spot because the article got syndicated in other papers, the Washington Post, I don't know if it made it to the New York Times, but it was in Chicago. It was, I, I imagine it was, yeah, I think so. So it, let's, let's say this, that Nicholas then felt under pressure to make Malbec because it was like glorified in this particular article. 
does he pull you over in like the winemaking room and put his arm around your head and give you noogies and say, don't, <laughs> don't ever do that to me again? Or you guys reckon with everything and move ahead? Well, Nicholas is a, quite a fellow and he wasn't upset with me, but he said, I can't do this under the Catena label. It's too risky. So we need to create something new. And so, I, I, you know, here's an opportunity, but I, I not all this work that we've put into get, growing Catena. So, so come up with a new brand. You're going to be the importer. And so that's what we did. We created Alamos as the vehicle to launch Malbec. It was a $9.99, $8.99 wine. And Best it, $10 wine, though. And it was drinking like a $30 bottle right. of wine. And Nicholas said, but Paul, you're going to be the importer of it. Is so that, I, I set up an import company. Is that when Paul Hobbs Selection started? And that's what caused the formation of Paul Hobbs Selection. And you were the importer. You didn't, I mean. For you, two years. You, right. Just to get it going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you still have an import business, which we'll, you know, we'll talk about and all of that. Um, yeah. That, that, that's a crazy story. I mean, then it was kind of off to the races. And then Nicholas, of course, said, well, you're too small. The brand's now selling. I was selling something like 15,000 cases in two years. So it took off. <laughs> and we had, we had Cabernet and Chardonnay, but it was the Malbec. And then it just went from the U.S. to Canada to the U.K. And then finally, the, the Argentines caught on. Right. That's funny. <laughs> and made it their signature variety. <laughs> that's funny. Um the case amounts compared to like the Nicholas Catena cabs in the mountains were like this and this. You know, were, it, yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> um, I, I want to talk to you about, I, you know, you're setting me up where I have to jump all over the place. So, you know, hang in there with me. So you're in, you're in Argentina. You do more than a heck of a job for the Catenas. They're still out there doing the same thing. At what point, when, why, how does I got to maybe start my own winery here? You know, how soon after the whole Catena story does that happen? After, and, and, and yeah. We didn't, talk about, we didn't talk about Paul Hobbs in California, which is there making wine. You're now, you know, on the road. Um, is this kind of your first for, foray out of, you know, California? To start a... I never worked outside of California. Okay. And I so never then, even... The only other company that I'd consulted, but I, I, my first consultancy ever was for Catena. Okay. My second one was Peter Michael, and that began in 1990. And then I, I, I've done a lot of con, other consultants. Swanson Vineyards was the next after that, and so on. How long were we with Peter Michael? Three years. Okay. I, From the change of Helen Turley, so 1990 through 92... So I'm a collector. I have some of those. Not much. <laughs> some shards, no less. Yeah. How they're drinking. If anything, good because of you. Um, all right. So you have this Argentina connection. How and when does your own winery come about? Paul Hobbs or, or Vina Cobos or both? <laughs> well, let's start with Vina Cobos. Sure. And then tell me about Paul Hobbs. Well, um, which was first? Paul Hobbs. All right, so let's go in order. In '91, <laughs> well, part of the deal w was for me to devote what I was going to need to devote to developing this program in Argentina. It was going to take a considerable amount of time, and I realized, you know, that could be three or four months out of the year. There's a lot to do in Argentina, changing viticulture. I mean, they were very primitive. 
It's opposite hemispheres to your benefit. And they were isolationists. That was to my benefit. So I, I thought, well, I'm going to take this opportunity to start my own, but I don't have a lot of money. So I had to put together a group of partners, and Nicholas became one of the one of my partners. So he supported me, I supported him, and so he's he remains a partner to this day. So that's how Paul Hobbs was given the. But it was the company started on around three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, wow, capital investment initially. And you know, in those days, and it's still possible today, I just bought grower fruit from great growers like Richard Dinner or Larry Hyde. And and I rented uh, a shared facility where, you know, so initially it was Cundy Estate Winery in Kenwood and then later Laird uh, in Napa before I built my own winery in 2003. So the physical structure was in 03. Correct. When was Vina Cobos? Vina Cobos got started in 1998. So I left Catena after 1990, in 1997. So I did a nine-year program with them. Wow. But it just comes to a point where... It's you. You feel like I think we, jointly we felt that this is a good time for Nicholas to go his way and for me to go my way, and also um, I think he wanted his children now because that was part of his goal was that his children were going afield and leaving Argentina, and so that's how I think As Laura natural. Laura just finished Stanford, and right. so she became the doctor. She became the doctor. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny, and so yeah, so that's. So it just seemed like the logical thing to do. And the, but the, the hard thing was, going to, how am I going to start a business in Argentina? And uh, so I used the Opus One model, 50-50 joint venture that the Rothschild, that the Rothschild Mondavi had put together. And I had... Uh, was it that clean 50-50 or you broke it up to more? 50-50. And who was Katana the 50 or you had, you had something? No, else? I, okay. I, I, I went out looking for fresh faces. Uh, stateside or down there or both? In Argentina. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, I recognized, and this is something that I think became very clear to me early on. In Chile, I probably could have gone in and worked without a local partner. But in Argentina, the way the laws, you need a local connection. It's as that much just, money as it is connections. Maybe more. Yeah, people. Right. So, so you yeah. needed, you were selective. Just Jackson made that mistake and lost millions going, going in alone ah. like a cowboy. And he got burned badly and basically had to pull up his stakes and leave. But I started, in, and the way I found my, my partners was uh, my wife um, was on a bus ride from Mendoza to San Rafael, and I, I'd asked her to help me find partners. So she got up in front of the bus and and basically announced to everybody that her like husband was like a, like a tour <laughs> guide. And it, it was not, it was Did anyone a, bite? And... And sure enough, that's crazy. She she found. I think I have a, a friend that might be interested. And so this young couple that had just been married in 1997 approached Mariella, and 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 basically from there they came up and worked an internship. And over a roasted chicken dinner, we put together the company that's Cobos today. So when do you break ground to build the physical winery? And are you doing much before you break? Yeah, we did it the same way as we, which was very tough. I might add to do it in Argentina. It wasn't set up like California, so very few startups. I think we might have been the first actually to buy grapes. That wasn't so unusual, but to go in to make wine in somebody else's winery was extremely rare. 
But I finally convinced someone uh, and to let us use his garage <laughs> at, at a winery. And that's how Vina Cobos got started. And, wow. and so just and all I wanted to do was make high-end Malbecs and do a study around the upper Rio, uh, Rio Mendoza area, the river zone, they call that. So meantime, the physical winery now is this stunning, you know, stark building with art, you know, very airy. Um, and I had mentioned in the promo, you know, that you're somewhat of a style icon. And I think that reflects in the winery. I mean, you did more than build a building. <laughs> I think you fulfilled a vision. I think there's a little of that at Paul Hobbs in California. When you walk around, you see that, um, you know, it's enough. There's not enough hours in the day to make wine and do all the BS. <laughs> you sit there and you build this vision. I mean, was that always something that was in you? You know, like, this has got to look this way or let's be different? Well, part of it just was I had to do because I had little money. And, you know, so that was the defining factor that many of my... So that type of style and architecture worked well it, for a limited be, budget? Believe it or not. It I mean, worked it came well. Out, it came out beautiful. Yeah, but it's it, very cool. But it also had, you know, I always was a strong believer in form or functional follow, or form, well, let me get that right, <laughs> form follows function. Right. And so function had to be the number one feature. And I... Most of the wineries in Mendoza were subterranean, and that was causing huge problems yeah. with with uh, corktain in the wine. So we that was part of the so, so this subterranean the cellar storage, the barrel storage, and all that. Yeah. Okay. So wait, at Vina Cobos, I remember there were like these huge. Everything was above ground, right? Correct. Yeah. I didn't beautiful want high ceilings, open ends, and all that. Yeah. Quite the opposite of the of the what anybody had done well, before. Catena was like a whatever a Mayan castle, you know, <laughs> and the whole basement was you know this crazy thing. I mean, credit to them, but I get that. Um, and then with Argentina, is like Bramari part of Vina Cobos, or is that yes. that's not a separate brand? Well, it, you know, Vina Cobos grew in kind of a rough and ready way. Meaning that it, we had, I had a vision, but various things conspired to alter our course along the way. So Bramari was never in the, was not a gleam in my eye. And we were forced to make Bramari, um, or our second label, if you will, uh, after Kobos because of weather conditions and challenges oh, really? we had with growers. And then the other labels have come in pretty much the same way. So mm -hmm. we kept, we couldn't make Kobos in some years, and we, so I had to make something. <laughs> wow. So that's how necessity, so it was. Yeah. Necessity created a lot of the, and that was a dirty, messy way to get started, of course, but that's how it got started. So in good years, you make Bramari, and it's just even better stuff because you're not taking bad vintage or bad vine lots and putting it in the bottle. So um, in most cases, or almost in every case, it's a great wine. Um, I want to talk to you about the other wineries. We'll get to them. But I have a few broader, you know, questions that I want to talk to you about. Um, you know, in doing research, what I found out about you, which I really think is terrific because of all the people I talk to, it seems to be where the world is, that you're a farmer first. Then you list yourself as a winemaker um, and then a founder. 
Um, and we all know that great wine is made with great farming. Um, and I agree with that. Um, every winery is different, especially with you, the terroir, the location, the weather, and all of that stuff. Um, give me a sense of your core approach to mostly viticulture and talk to me about winemaking. And like I said, every winery is different. Do the general principles apply to everywhere? And I know you have to pivot in some places, but, and I don't want to get into buzzwords. You take yeah. me where you want, like organics, <laughs> biodynamics, um, a couple things that are important to me, you know, low intervention, sustainability. So yeah. you know, get to that for me too. Yeah. Well, um, I think it kind of hit the nail on the head, Sam, with a, I, for whatever reason, and I guess it's partly in my family's history, but my, it my, is it's not my, partly. We've been we've been in farming in fourth fifth generation, and so maybe by European standards, but I, I, clearly our we have an agrarian background from Europe as well. But in the U.S., we've had only four or five generations. Uh, my father was always interested in how the land, I mean, there wasn't a word for it. Now the French coined the term terroir in the 1980s, but before that, <laughs> this term didn't exist. So we just, I mean, people would talk about sense of place or this or that. My dad was even into that concept, even with apples. And so we had six separate farms, um, and he would, like, want me to see how the apple was different based on the farm that was grown. But then we could also see the impact of the farming. And so I learned that as a child, working on, you know, we were working not only pruning, but, the, you know, throughout the whole growing cycle. And in those days, there wasn't much emphasis, you know, the U.S. was, it was commercial farming and, and, and art, you know, Fertilizers were made and Roundup and Roundup and even DDT, believe right. it or not, you know, and, and so people would hoard DDT when they heard it was going to be banned. Wow. And my dad was one. And I said, Dad, you can't use that. <laughs> but he said, Well, how are we going to control the mosquitoes or this on the apples and this and that? And then you, you know, so we know where all that went. One of the pillars in my mind, uh, if you want to truly express place, and so this is for me when I started Polyps Winery in 1991. One of the pillars was that I would only work with single vineyard, or what we call vineyard designate. And to do that meant there would be no blending. And if there was no blending, you just had to, it had to perform and it had to stand on its own. And that put a very high bar. But I thought that's really uh, what I need to do. And so to do, I, I, and I didn't have my own vineyard. So that was, I had to work with growers that would be convinced that that farming with low impact, as the term you use, which I like quite a lot, uh, doesn't mean there's not some intervention that you, but you're kind of in a dance with nature. And so very low herbicide or no herbicide and how we would work the soils and composting, bringing back what we took out in a natural way and delicate handwork, but not overworking it. Right. Or underworking it and doing things at the right time meant that we could, we could use precision, but it required discipline. It wasn't very common um, in winemakers. In fact, most winemakers weren't trained in any kind of viticulture. So the growers were really kind of like surprised to see, you're a winemaker, what are you doing in our vineyard <laughs> kind of so thing. So 
being patient and kind of learning all that. Mm. In time, you understand it, you get better at it, you move closer towards, you know, as little intervention just because you realize you could do it, you know what it takes, you know, maybe if we don't apply herbicides this time, do something else. Um, do you definitely move in that direction as time goes by? Or it's vintage by vintage what location? Really, I made a commitment when I started Paul Hobbs that I would use, for example, no cultured yeast, nothing grown in a factory. So all fermentations. Is all. And that had never, I don't think there was any winery at the time. Peter Michael had one SKU called that Quen, was Quen an Rouge. indigenous yeast. Yeah, that was indigenous. Everything. So was the nineties stuff you worked on was all. Most of it was cultured yeast. And right. Helen Turley was when Marcuson went all all native. Right. But I think we were like the the first to do that and dedicated to this con- concept of 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 vineyard designate. Can you? <laughs> I'm always intrigued by this because Napa drives me crazy and keep <laughs> Napa in mind. I know Peter Michael's on Napa and Sonoma. Um, what we're talking about, when we look at Napa and all the vast wineries and all the people that do it, how many people are using indigenous yeast? Has it shifted towards that or there's still a lot, there's still an, uh, like fake inoculation or whatever you call it? <laughs> Well, some argue that, you know... No names, I'm just saying. The yeah, valley's still... It's mostly cultured yeast. It is. Certainly. And then some would argue, when I was... You know, one of my good friends, Chateau Margot, Paul Pontillier, would tell me, yeah, we use cultured... We don't use culture. It's all native fermentation. So I asked, well, how do you start the fermentation? So, well, we pick some grapes early, and then we... You see those pipes up there? We run up the pipe run everything through the pipes, and then we don't rinse them. <laughs> That's how he creates. <laughs> it kind of so, works for him, right? <laughs> but, but you know, if, you're, if your farming is soft, and what I mean by that is you really respect the, the fruit and the plant, you, there's not native wine yeast on the bloom of the berry, and that's all you need. You just bring that into the winery, and sort of like this concept of spontaneous generation occurs. And it just after five to six, seven days, it would start. Well, that you, you know, and that, I learned this from the French, from the Burgundians. It was the old vignerons making wine in the cellars below their living rooms, and they. I said, "You had, you never had yeast? No, it just takes off all by itself." They taught me a lot of, a lot of things that I couldn't get from the big name producers. But these guys in the winter time, I'd go stay with them, and they would tell me how they make their wine. And then I'd try some of these things in California, and sure enough, it worked. That's amazing. <laughs> um, so shifting to winemaking, similar, you know, sensibilities, right? I mean, obviously, we just talked about yeah. the yeast, which is, you know, really in the cellar, sticking with natural. Um, I mean, not much else going on, right, as far as, you know, making the wine. What about, and I don't want to get too nerdy because we're more of a consumer show than mm. an industry show. But what about things like whole cluster, carbonic? I mean, did that vary by grape winery or philosophically you like doing it? I mean, where'd that fit in? Well, when it comes to... You know, whole cluster stems and, you know, all that stuff. So now we're talking Pinot Noir. Okay. And uh, so, because actually, if we go back to Chardonnay production, it used to be all destemmed to the press 
now all high quality Chardonnay is made whole cluster to press. But with red wine, as you know, of course, uh, you destem typically and put just berries into the fermenter and leave the stem behind. Burgundy has always had the raging battle. It goes on today. It's been going on for God knows how long. Do you put some whole cluster in there? And if you do, of course, you've got stem. And why would you do that? And so you had these opposing schools of thought. You, you know, for example, a Domaine de la Romaniconti is like, yes, whole cluster. Henri Jaillet, who you worked with, well, I, I had the privilege of spending a little bit of time was with Was no whole cluster? He <laughs> just was, put the fruit in? Correct. Wow. He, Two he good was, arguments. He was like <laughs> polar the opposite, polar opposite. So, And he just felt that was foolish to do. And so you can't, you know, these are two of the best guys. I mean, Jair is no longer with us. But Romani Conti, Jair, one way or another, so... Pick your poison. I Pick mean. your poison. Yeah. Um, so, but in California, we really, I, in my experience, going without whole cluster, I don't think works as well. I, I, I like some whole cluster in the ferment in California. So wait, in California, for your Paul Hobbs Pinots, yes, which is where you're going to consider whole cluster and all that stuff, um, you shy away from it. It doesn't work. We use it in Pinot Noir. Oh, you do quite use a, it quite a bit. Oh, okay. I thought yep. you said the opposite. My bad. Um, and you get all the characteristics and nuances of the stems, and you know, there are a lot of wives' tales, a lot of myths, and so on. We didn't know. For, we thought that when the Burgundians used them, because when I started working with the Jaé in '84, it was already after harvest. I never got the chance to see what it looked like. Oh. We thought the stems had to be brown. We said, well, try to get the stems brown means you basically end up with raisins because the so stem you, is lignified. It's you want now. them greenish? They have to be green. To get that characteristic. But you don't want them too green. No, 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 no. <laughs> I mean, like anything. I mean, you pick grapes at a certain bricks. You don't want them too sweet, too under, you know. I mean, I get that. It just shows you, you know, how much you have to stay on top of it. Um, Paul, we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Paul Hobbs. Um, we're going to talk to Paul about some very interesting projects around the world. Um, and we're going to taste a few wines. So stay with us and we'll be right back. This episode is supported by HRN business member Radical Wine, a small neighborhood wine and spirit shop in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn, that specializes in natural wine and regional based spirits. Radical Wine is a shop where community can hang out and listen to records while finding a delicious bottle of wine for any occasion. Grab a bottle from the shop to bring to their sister restaurant, Brooklyn Hots, which is right next door. Radical supports HRN's creative, educational reporting and storytelling that drive conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. Today, I'm asking business owners to take part in our business membership drive by supporting HRN's mission with a $500 membership. HRN will shine a light on your work and you'll help sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. 
As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You'll also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Paul Hobbs. Um, I wanted to, before we get into the wineries, because there's a handful of interesting wineries that I'm very curious about, um, I want to talk to you about the challenges of being a global winemaker. Um, And I'm curious, because we're really talking like South America, one world, Armenia, another world, France. Um, how, how do you navigate different cultures? You have language barriers, you have personnel issues, resources. I mean, I stumbled on a story in Armenia that things just don't exist that you need. So you got to make them or something, you know, how do you, is it harder in some places than others? Is just being out of the U S a pain in the ass or how do you navigate all this? Well, first, I would say, uh, Sam, I find it exhilarating. Well, yeah, that's why you're doing it, obviously. <laughs> but it is, it is not easy, and, and it takes time. I mean, but I love learning about different cultures and new cultures, and that's part of the – I mean, and then I've always found it fascinating is how does this grape behave? I know it from this particular environment, and I mean, you could just go to Napa or Sonoma and and stay entertained because all the nooks and crannies that you've got to work with certainly. So you're going to say the opposite. There's yeah. still runway there. There's plenty. I yeah. mean, I've, I, 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 so it wasn't as though I was, but, but, but culturally, yeah, it's more or less a monoculture in a sense from a people point of view. But also I just found it like my first foray really was Argentina Right. And I did very early on very, before yeah. people were running around. Yeah. It was just maybe Michelle Roland was in the U S but guys weren't like globetrotting much, <laughs> you know, we both started, Michelle and I both started in Argentina in two different parts of Argentina at the same time. Right. 1988, 89. But then I started in, I started working in Chile in 92 and later Uruguay, but France and so on. So I just have always found the, cultural part of it and the food and the wines and the pairings and the way people think about things and how they think about growing and overcoming their problems to be a fascinating thing. But it is very tough to build teams. Mm -hmm. That's personnel. And Hungary, for example. That you're going to leave for a good part of the year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you had Hungary uh, where I worked for five years as a consultant and I I was being, I was seriously considering setting something up but then I just couldn't get comfortable with, I mean, the people were very friendly and so on, but I didn't, I, I couldn't get comfortable running a business there. So that's why it doesn't happen. And we'll get to Galicia in a second, but Galicia happens because there's a guy there that can make it happen. Correct. Which we'll talk about in a minute. Yep. Um, 
So it's really an appetite and an energy, and like I said earlier, curiosity. I mean, you still and, – and the world is like a classroom. You know, to you, like what's, what are these grapes in, in Armenia and what can I do with Malbec in France? So that appetite is still there. I, I mean, you don't tire of any of this travel? <laughs> I mean, you, you and I, you know, about, we're about the same age. You know, I'm, I'm like, you know, chilling out. You're like adding projects. <laughs> well, I don't know why. I just travel well, you know. So well, that's you know, why, because you travel well, <laughs> you know. Well, that, so that, I can curl up in any, and even now, and I'm, I, 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 you know, I, I go on the 16-hour, 17-hour flight down to Argentina, I just leave San Francisco tired and wake refreshed when I get to Buenos Aires. <laughs> but you're looking forward to what you're going to, and, I am. you know, the challenges yeah, I love and all of that. All right, so let's so you you navigate all the things and the important thing is your curiosity and you like the challenge and you know, it would be boring otherwise. Um, you know, you're definitely that guy. Um I like the problem solving part of yeah, it. Yeah. People just yeah. like you know. And creative solutions. You know, to give you an example, um, in the Patagonia region, you brought mentioned We're going to talk about that. Yeah. We could not find uh, and keep a vineyard manager. Uh, Why? Because the, in, in the province where, we're, where our vineyards are is also the major petroleum-producing part of Argentina. And so the petroleum industry would just, you know, you train a guy, get they them- pay more? And then they would- yeah, they, you would get them to a manager level, and then the, yeah, they 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 buy the, that person out from under you. So, wow. so what did we do? I suggested that the owners take their chauffeur, who is so loyal to them that he would never leave, and we'll train him to be a vineyard manager. And it proved to be very <laughs> effective. That's he, tremendous. He runs the vineyard today. <laughs> He's learned everything. And you know what? We had so the same. loyalty. Obviously, the guy was bright enough, you know, so you could train him. But yeah. that's, you know, that's thinking out of the box a little. Well, that, so use, you use that, and that's what we did. I did the same thing in Armenia. So the question was, what are the challenges of being a global winemaker? There's a perfect example of an answer. I mean, think about it, right? Yeah. I mean, because Patagonia is about as extreme as you can get. Um, so, what caught my attention was the places that you're making wine are some of the most interesting and exciting places in the world right now. Um, we talked about Patagonia. Um, let's start with that. Um, Patagonia may be one of the most extreme places and wineries. Um, they've been getting some headlines because there's been some partnerships with Chakra, mm-hmm. um, you know, with some good winemakers. But Quickly, how do you get in there, you know, and why? I mean, you're familiar, obviously, with Argentina and South America. Is it just that appetite to make wine in a region that's just crazy and challenging? Uh, I, I, I do have that problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, I find it fascinating. I just, you know, and it's a challenging place to make wine. Set that up for a second because people see rolling Bordeaux vineyards or the farmer in the field in Burgundy or the gorgeous Napa. Patagonia, I mean, what are you dealing with there? Well, uh, climate is a is a factor and wind in particular. I mean, I think many people have heard about the Patagonian wind, so... And then you've got extreme temperature shifts. Shorter season. And 
the season is not necessarily shorter, but the weather can be more extreme. Right. That's and that's the that's the the real deal there. So what you have to do to protect vineyards and so on and so forth would be quite different than what we would do in most other viticultural regions of the world. You have to you have to prepare for the wind and wind breaks, things of that nature. So, with all those sort of negatives, and we know Pinot is a very finicky grape. Why Pinot in Patagonia? Because you can find these little sweet microclimates that have the soils that you you need, and so this is like looking for the needle in the haystack kind of thing. But and sometimes it's, it truly is a needle in the haystack. It may not be a very large area, but there's an area that's protected with a hill or this or that, and just with the right inclination to the sun and so on and so forth and drainage, and there is where you can set up camp. So in New York, we have an expression, location, location, location. location. <laughs> so there, unless you're not in the right location. Yeah. But isn't that true in any wine area or the the, the soil suitable to in the right microclimate or... It seems very extreme to, you know, seek out. Well, you know, it depends on kind of the part of the world. If you're in the old world or the ancient world, there's not much to discover. I mean, when we started looking around Armenia, it's a small country, so you can get across from corner to corner pretty pretty easily. So it didn't take that many days, but you realize that people 6,000 years ago already figured this thing out. Right. So we <laughs> kind of late to the game. Yeah. So we here we are. I mean, maybe it's been forgotten and the areas come back again, but and so it's almost like rediscovering something and it's almost like a confirmation when you find out well actually, you know, you're not the first. There's there's people that have been farming here for a long time. This is Armenia? Armenia. Or? But in but in the new world and when you go to the Patagonia, you are an explorer. You are the first. You are the pioneer. You <laughs> So I don't feel as much of a pioneer when I'm in a, in the in the old world or right. the ancient world because right. people have already sorted it out. What, but it's fun. It's have fun you to, kind of figured it out, or it's still a work in pro- like, like the the wines are good, or you feel that there's still you know improvement, and that doesn't have anything to do with a twelve year old vines better than a seven year old, right? Just the area in general. Um. I can say this, that we have never figured it all out, but we've got a lot of things that we know what we're doing. And so, yeah, a lot, a lot has been figured out. And But if you look at a place like Armenia, there's still a lot of upside. Right. A tremendous amount. Worth staying in, investing, and making one. Correct. Um, yeah. And that's not the silly project, you know, your mom or your friend yells at, like, why are you doing that? It's a waste of time. <laughs> it's... Definitely it's worth the, real deal. the time and effort and the product and all that. Because yeah, I know Chakra's gotten, you know, some good notices and all that. And, absolutely. You know, done a good so job. So if you're in the Patagonia, I mean, that's they've they've found, uh, as, the, as the French would call it, true terroir. Right. Which is... Uh, so even in a, this rough place like the Patagonia, there's these little spots, and that's what they did. They found this extraordinary little oasis... But here's what I can't figure out. Somebody didn't stop between Mendoza and Patagonia and find something else a little easier. I mean, that that was off the, uh, y- you know, the plan. I mean, it's just why Patagonia? 
and they're going even further south. I guess. And more extreme. I, mean, I guess that's But that's part of human nature, too. Yeah. I mean, it's like, that's well, a I, whole different I gotta story. conquer Everest, so. <laughs> right. Um, you mentioned Armenia, so let's talk about that. You know, I mentioned in the intro that it's, and you alluded to, it's, you know, the oldest winemaking region. So they've been doing that for a long time. Um, interestingly enough, Eric Asimov from the Times wrote an article about 10 grapes worth knowing better. And one of them was, and I'm not sure the uh, pronunciation, Areni, Areni, which is one of the Armenian grapes, which Irene. I think you're working with. Um, so tell me about the Armenia project. It didn't happen yesterday. It's been around, but it's newer. Um, you know, the, the standard questions, you know, how'd you get there? I guess in our discussions, you found somebody that was worth partnering with. Tell me what you're doing there. Well, as all these things have happened, uh, I've been sought out by folks that want to do something in their country or in their, their region. And in this particular So case, Bob Yakubian gets on the phone and says, <laughs> is Paul there? Paul, I have a proposition. I mean, how does that work? Pretty much. Um, yeah, I think because of the work that I did in Argentina, people, okay, this is a winemaker that doesn't mind going to faraway places. All the stuff we discussed. And, yeah, and, and, and places that are challenging. In fact, that's actually what I like. I'm kind of like, in that sense, the Red Adair, the guy that used to put out oil fires. Yeah, yeah, I love that guy. <laughs> throw, and I, and I love him too. Throw a cap on a thing, you know, <laughs> crazy guy. So that just gets my, if I think that they've got the terroir, that's all I need. And they've got the commitment. So process-wise, you get the call. Obviously, you do a little research. These guys are for real. Here's where they're at. Then you mm -hmm. decide to make the trip, right? Correct. I mean, you're not going to do this blind COVID Zoom type thing. Right. You eventually head out there. And I guess in this project, what you saw you liked, including the people. So what did you see? Well, in this case, um, I saw a culture that was quite sophisticated I mean, it's mainly based around the capital city of Yerevan, but I felt in their cuisine, I mean, in their art, music, and so on, were all indications that they had a flair for... An evolved. An evolved society. Yeah. And they would appreciate the tension, you know, and this has happened because I, during the Soviet period, when Armenia was part of the Soviet bloc, uh, the Kremlin, basically, Moscow put Armenia as a producer of cognacs, or what they called cognacs. But they were a wine-producing country before they were Soviet. So they lost their skill in making wines. And that's actually the reason I was asked to go into Hungary, because they lost their skill to make some of these sweet wines during which, the Soviet. Which they were internationally you know, famous for. Famous, it's, yeah. It's sad that that's why and what happens. Yeah. So, so that's how it, that's how this sort of transpired. But I knew, I'll tell you one thing that's really interesting. When I, I consulted to Warren Winiarski at Stagsley Wine Cellars, and when Warren When, was, in the early days? or Back in the 2000s. Okay. So, but that was close to the time that Warren was to retire. And so I think it was 2000, 2001, roughly. It, and so Warren had a party for all his winemakers to to say thank you. <laughs> and um, I was never a winemaker for him, but he was kind enough to include me. Uh, I think he just, 
he likes sitting in the room and we talk wine technology or wine science or whatever. So at any rate, Warren asked each of us to put our hands, and he made a handprint, and so you can see there's a wall of all the winemakers' hands. In addition, he gave us a silver vial with two pips, and he said, these are from the oldest um, known varieties on the planet from Armenia. And I knew little about Armenia. I put those pips away and never thought about it again until I got a call from a gentleman by the name of Vikan Yakubian. Not Bob. <laughs> Not Bob. <laughs> and Vikan said, hey, I've had one of your Pinot Noirs, one of the best wines. I've tasted my wife and I. So he left me a message that night after he'd been at the restaurant. And he said, so I called him back the next morning. Then he said, listen, we'd like to see if you would be interested. So they came up to, to visit me, and then eventually that led to the trip. So different terroir history. Let's talk varietals. I mean, you're not making a ton of different wines there. What are you making there, and what are the varietals you've settled on? Because I know in Spain it's not like you're making dozen varietals you focused on you know very what are you doing in armenia well first um we had to sort out all these native or indigenous varieties and i with all of them none of which i was familiar fortunately there's a gentleman there was a gentleman there that did microvinifications from many and he had already made some separations and then he asked me to join him in a in a tasting to kind of pick, you know, like the final 10, final four, and then we whittled it down. And in the red varieties, it was quite clear. Areni stood out. Okay. As the as an indigenous. A-R-E-N-I? Yes. Areni is, so that's a varietal you settled on for the we red. We settled on that one. There was Tosot, and there were a number of these things that none of them would be familiar to Westerners, I don't think. And then with the whites, it wasn't so clear cut. And so we decided- Why? More or harder to they focus They brought on? different things, but they were all elements that we felt could work well in a blend. So we settled on basically four white varietals. And- So you've settled on a blend. And we're making Was a white it, blend. Is any one grape predominant or it really varies? Um, t- there is one. What, Voska hot. Spell? V-O-S-K-H-E-T. Okay. And that kind of leads the That's blend. That's the lead. The Curdy is another one. Um, yeah. So there, But there's four of them and um, that we work with that, that really, through our trial and error procedure, kind of rose to the top. So I'm sitting here closing my eyes, and I'm like, I'm going to take a sip of an Arini. What am I thinking about when I taste it? I mean, does it, I, this is silly, but a lot of people <laughs> may never get to taste it or see it, but what are, what can you relate it to? Well, that was a question I've, I've been asked uh, by uh, some folks, Letty T. Smarter people than me. Let, let, Letty Teague asked me that at oh, the, yeah? the Wall Street Journal, like when it first came out. And, and I said, Letty, I'll tell you, it's like a, Nebbiolo, it has somewhat tannin profile. But it's not big but it's on not the mouthfeel like Correct. Nebbiolo versus a Tuscan. 
And then to me, it's like a blend of Nebbiolo, and, and I know this sounds strange, so forgive me, but it's like there's some Pinot Noir qualities to it as well. I don't see that strange. Yeah, I, I they, see comparisons. They, they play together quite nicely. So that's a good profile. So that would be a very likable. It's a delicious, easy, relatively easy, but it'll age nicely. So it's got it good complexity. Age. It's got good tension on the palate. What about the whites? Um, are those made to drink pretty soon? Are they aromatic? Are they, you know, any resemblance to like California cabs? I mean, shards, you know, big and all that or more finesse, you know, what would... I would say we lean more toward a finesse style, but with an aromatic floral element. Um, the grapes off There's some honeysuckle kind of, you know, gardenia notes in there. But uh, is, is anything aged in wood? Is it no? With the white, we, actually, we make out any in the red. We make it some steel only, and other. We don't do the amphora thing. I'm not a fan of the amphora, but that's another conversation. Right. <laughs> but, Busting an eight thousand year old tradition. Get this guy <laughs> out of here, right? But that, so, that's your call. <laughs> but with the whites, uh, we stay clear of the wood. Um. So the. The winery is Yakubian Hobbs, Y-O-C-O-U-B-I-A-N. Yes. And people's interest may be piqued. Is there any way to find it in the U.S.? Oh, yes. I mean, I, Where do I, you I, go? Like a good wine store think, online? Yeah. Okay. Yes. You can certainly find it. Um, of course, if you're in Los Angeles and... You know, you've got a large Armenian community, so it's everywhere there. <laughs> um, yeah, well, New York's pretty big, <laughs> pretty too, good, so. pretty good size as well. Um, but it's sound, but you can you can find it in New York. Like I said off air, I mean, we probably could have spent an hour just talking about the country, the winery, the grapes. You know, so I don't mean to kind of brush over it, but it's it's nice to talk about it. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, Galicia, New York State. Mm -hmm. And we need to go back to Malbec. So let's talk about Crocus, which yeah. is a winery in France where you make Malbec. We talked about it being one of the five Bordeaux blending grapes with its own characteristic. How'd that project come about? Well, that was a direct tie to my work in Argentina. And uh, one of the top producers of the of the Cahuar region uh, made a trip expressly he, I was consulting to a, a French gentleman in, our, in, in Argentina, and these two gentlemen were friends. So, and this is, un, this is unusual. I think, uh, I don't have any proof of this, but I believe <laughs> I am the only American consulting winemaker to a French company. And it was really a risky and daring move on my partner's Part because bad PR if they got caught or well not the French caught, the French just... are sort of nationalistic when it comes to their wine right so there's what are you bringing an American we got plenty of winemakers right here why are you bringing an American you know it's like yeah they and so he it was a it was kind of a ballsy thing to do and so but because of my experience with Argentina yeah I mean I, I want to get into that so what what was he looking for I mean they've had great experience growing Capsoft certainly Merlot you know the Petrusas of the world that side um, 
Petit Verdot, Cab Franc, hugely popular everywhere. Malbec, not as much, except, you know, the move into Argentina. What did they want you to help them with? I mean, what weren't they doing that they thought you can help them with? Well, uh, essentially, Cowher had fallen on hard times. And they despised the Bordelais because they, well, the Bordelais had sort of dried up their business. And that's, uh, there's a great history. Folks could, I mean, we could talk about that as a show. <laughs> that is a good story, though. <laughs> it's a very good because, story. Because, you know, you think of Bordeaux and all the wines and what went in it, that sort of got pushed aside. So Caor was even more important at one time than Bordeaux. Right. And then Bordeaux Malbec basically. Malbec was a ruling grape. That was the know. ruling grape, even yeah. in Bordeaux. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so what happened is that this is an isolated area of France, one of the most, the least populated, one of the most difficult to get to regions. And they fell behind the times. Sanitation, abysmal. <laughs> uh, the wineries were just horrid in terms of, I, I mean, I was surprised to see that in France. And in addition, they were over-extracting, not by a little, but a tremendous tannic wine. I mean, literally take the li- the skin off your really? the, your lips in just two or three sips. <laughs> but they were eating, I mean, it's also the capital of foie gras. And so they had it probably, but not everybody eats foie gras every day. No. They thought it was peanut butter. I mean, I saw right. my partner's son was like six years or seven years old when I first started working with him, and he's you spreading know, foie gras. A, a rice cake with what? foie gras or something, right? <laughs> that's, quite, that's crazy. Yeah, that is. That's what they were doing. So it was extraction and how, I mean, they just need a refinement of their winemaking, and they didn't want to work with a Bordeaux winemaker, and they didn't think anybody else from France would be... Made perfect sense. No, and so, and they wanted the, some of the halo effect of what we had done in Argentina. It doesn't sound like a hard challenge. It sounds like your wheelhouse, right? Right. I mean, more the people and all the side stuff than the actual project. Um, Another question I don't love asking, but I got you here, is, you know, Malbec is the same grape, but not when it's grown in different countries, terroirs, and climates. Mm Mm-hmm difference between the French and the Argentinian? Quite a lot. And I think part of it is... Quite a lot for obvious reasons, because of climate, terroir, soil. And the grape mutates some and adapts to its new new home. And so just like we would if we grew up in Hawaii versus (laughs) New York. (laughs) Right. You know, you have the same DNA, but you've just had a different environmental. And so, yeah, there's a big difference. And that's that's really an interesting answer because that really is the answer because mm-hmm. that what ha- that's what happens in time. Yeah. Um, is there a what is it to that? Like, what is the way they evolve in their areas? What are their differences? Or I mean, can you quite well tell me the, the Andes stuff. where we're growing Malbec in Argentina is it? radically different uh, from this region of France. They're kind of near the central massif where it's quite mountainous. And the soils, which were the biggest shock, I, when I was there, I mean, I was the first time, these soils remind me of, of, the, of the Côte d'Or. Really? Of Burgundy. Sure. And, and so on my second trip, a geologist took out a map and showed me, yeah, these soils are not only, but they are 
formed at the same time during the Jurassic. Oh, really? So yeah. a lot of commonality. So there's a commonality oh. in, in, in the soils. So that the soils captured my attention immediately. And, um, but the wines were so harsh. And I said, well, why is that? Is there something they're doing in the making? Or is it just that's the nature of the fruit here? But we found out that it, we could... We and then and, and we could modify through the winemaking. So Crocus that. is the winery. Yep. And to my recollection, there's three, four, five SKUs, you know, with different names, right? Just three. Three. Yep. Okay. Yep. And the three different bottlings represent what, vineyards or? Re- there's basically three levels of quality. Okay. Yeah. So and that's reflected would be through a, price, through price too. Correct. Okay. Um, yeah. And one hundred percent Malbec or blended. Uh, it's one hundred percent. The uh, um, the AOC does allow for Merlot, but we don't work with Merlot, so it's one hundred percent Malbec. Okay. All right. So that's Crocus. Um, we got to move along a little because I got a couple things I want to get to, but I want to talk to you about Galicia. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk to you about New York State because we're uh, sipping the Riesling. So let's jump into New York State. Um, we talked about how you came from that area. Um, you have a winery called Hillock and Hobbs, uh, Seneca Lake, truly, you know, a Finger Lakes winery. Right now you're making one wine, a Riesling. Um, Tell me about this project. It's none of these like started yesterday, but <laughs> you, you know some of the wines are fairly recent. Um, t- tell me a little about Hillock and Hobbs. I guess it's a return to some roots. Yes, I don't think that was that wasn't the driving. Okay, I mean it was. It's it's just one of the kind of cool things that sort of grew out of the project. But in essence, uh, Riesling was one of my first passions i think uh, i cut my teeth when i was, began working on you know or thinking about wine as a career a riesling was the go-to wine for me german rieslings in particular you sound like a sommelier <laughs> that's all they love <laughs> anyway that's so, so i'm told yeah and so it just made sort of sense, and I was staying in touch with Germany throughout my career, even though I wasn't making Riesling. But I would just go there because I found that region fascinating, and so I would keep learning about what they were doing. Particularly the Mosul fascinated me. And There's so I, an obvious question in there, like why didn't you connect with somebody or do something there? You, know, you mean with, in Germany? Yeah, I mean it's well, well, still not off the. Off okay, the. <laughs> so I guess the end of the interview is like, what's the future? But you answered it now. That's a possibility. That could be a possibility. All right, so continue with Hillock and Hobbs. But Hillock and Hobbs really, uh, I started consulting to a winery in Niagara on the Lake in Canada, and that helped me. That's over ten years, probably twelve, maybe even fourteen years ago. That sort of began to reacquaint me with the challenges of super cold climate, marginal sites, and I were started, they making rieslings too, or was it just were, mostly it sweet wines? Or they were making reds and doing they some, were doing everything. Okay. Some some pretty interesting okay. off the wall stuff. Okay, but God bless and them. even even Malbec, which was insane because Malbec's not cold tolerant. But no okay, kidding. so yeah. <laughs> so at any rate the. Uh, you know, then I, I was approached by my brothers saying, hey, you know, we've got some folks in Rochester that would like 
to invest in a project that you would do in the U.S., or I mean in New York. And I said, well, I'd love to do something in New York. So I thought, okay, I'll go down that road. We talked a few times. But then, and I started making trips into the Finger Lakes, just exploratory to see what, but I want, I wanted, I had this Mosul mindset, if you will, that it, that, so I was very particular about the kind of site that we needed. I couldn't find anybody. Are you looking for tiered vineyards off the lake? Correct. I mean, that's sort of that or nothing? Correct. Does it exist on some of the lakes? Believe it or not. But, but not a lot? But there's very little, and typically at the southern tip of the lakes. Which is but where all, you are. That, that's where we finally settled. Southeast or on the bottom? Southeast because we and wanted And there's westerns. some elevation and tiering? Quite. So we have, uh, where our property ends is a cliff that drops 150 feet ah, to the lake. That was very important. That's unique. And we have, in some cases, up to 55 degrees slope. So that's... That's uh, steep. Bingo, yeah. Yeah, so you can't really, you got to be careful farming. Some of it, you can't even farm with a tractor. It's too steep. Yeah. So which, we do it the old Roman style, the way they, they still do it in, in parts of, on do, some of the steepest slopes of Germany. They do that in the Rhone, too. You Correct. Know, where there's some crazy. Um, yeah. So you're making just Riesling. Um, when was the first vintage? Well, the first commercial vintage is 19, but we began making the first wines in 17. That's what I'm saying. I mean, you've been there for years, but it's not like it's, you we know. We planted in 14. Okay. But this is the first project, Sam, that I started I started from scratch, from the ground up. I mean, That has to be refreshing was, and fun, right? It was refreshing and fun until it got expensive. <laughs> what, what happens? Where does the expense come? I mean, what... Well, the land what? wasn't very expensive, but because of our property being steep and on the lake and the road direction. Planting and all of that? or Each each plant, to get it in the ground, you've got to punch a hole with a huge steel tooth. Like it's Time, it's labor, machinery, and all that. It's like driving a piling in, in Manhattan. It's solid rock. I mean, you didn't realize that going in or you don't know the extent of it? We had a sense of it. But once you have to do hundreds and hundreds, sixty. Where do you get 60, the uh, rootstock from? Where you, you know is it from the area? Believe or? it or not, it's all good German rootstock, but it's we can source it all here in the U.S. Really? Yeah. Really. So there's either in New York or out of California. All right. So we have we have the nineteen Riesling in front of us. Um, you stated you've been a German and Riesling lover forever. So obviously, in making a wine, you have to be influenced by that. Does this wine emulate those things? Does it hit those notes? I mean, is it different because we're in New York State? I mean, tell me <laughs> about the wine that you made. Well, certainly not like a Mosul wine because most of those are sweet. And, well, technically... I, I agree. I just had Michael <laughs> Moosberger from Schloss Goebelsberg on and... Austria makes less sweet wines than Germany does, and this is a dry Riesling. So this you is set out to intentionally to go dry, and and you know I just felt with food and the way people are drinking today that that, and I also I was influenced by the faults and parts of Austria as you mentioned and Alsace, right? Which and is I just, terrific too. Yeah, beautiful. So I I didn't know what course we were going to get. Um, but I, one thing I knew for sure, because of the rock, we were going to get a lot of this stony, wet rock kind of mineral feel and tension in the palate. Yeah, it definitely has. 
we hate to use the word minerality like we use natural wine, but there's that stony, you know, rock. There's some nice tension here. There's some good acidity, you know, which makes it a nice food wine. And it's all natural. There's no need to ameliorate it. We don't add sugar like, you know, that you could do in New York, and we don't add acids because nobody needs to do that probably. This is a wine for people who think Riesling is some sweet crap that you put in front of them, don't tell them, serve it with the appropriate meal and go, that was Riesling. You go, really? No, that's, you know, it's a terrific wine. Um, I've always felt, Sam, that we could go toe-to-toe with the best out of Europe and, 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 and do that in America, but where? And there's been only one place on my mind. I haven't found any place in South America that I would do go for our you know, high-end Riesling. No, I think and I don't think the West Coast, it gets you some nice Rieslings. Well, they're doing it where, in Oregon or Washington? They're making a little up there. Yeah, and those are very different climates. Yeah, different wines. Re- Riesling loves the New York climate. You just need to find the right soils. To your credit in making this and to some other people, they've committed themselves to making some nice Rieslings out of New York, um, which is getting a lot of attention. So this is mm. the 2019 Hillock and Hobbs Seneca Lake um, Riesling. If you're a fan of Riesling, this is a great wine. If you're a fan of New York State wines, um, New York State Rieslings is certainly at the top of the game. This is somewhat available or available? I would think in New York. Certainly through the winery, but also through distribution. Yeah. I mean, at the end, we'll tell people where to go for most stuff, but I would guess everything we discuss, if you go to the site of the winery, you can get information. Go to our website. All right. Let's finish on um, Galicia, Mm. which I think a lot of parts of Spain are incredibly exciting, you know, going out to the Canary Islands and (laughs) Ribera de Sacra and Galicia, you know, all that stuff. So you are making wine in Galicia. You're making a Godello and a Mencia, you know, which are two um, terrific grapes, popular grapes. Talk to me about that project. I think you ran into somebody that made it worth your while to... Correct. And that's an area who wouldn't get excited about, right? <laughs> well, I, I really didn't know what to expect. I didn't know Spain well, frankly. And so when um, my partner, Antonio, uh, approached me, you know, I was like, uh, well. Antonio's the partner in this project, mm-hmm. which is Alvarados. That's the that's the name of the little village that he grew up in. Okay. As Alvarados. Okay. His last name is Lopez. He didn't want to use his last name. So the wine is Alvarado's Hobbs, Lopez naming it after his village. Correct. Okay. And this area of Spain has lost a lot of these small villages. And uh, I think Antonio, what he, his, his grandfather, I think, started making wine and having small vineyards, and his father continued that. But then this village started to disappear. And so Antonio is, lives here in New Jersey. <laughs> and so, but he's spending almost six months out of the year in, in Spain reconnecting all these that have been subdivided by generations, all these small little plots, and making them large enough so that they're, you know, they're economical to farm them. But most of them are still so small that you would never get a tractor on it. You just really either it's human or maybe horse. That's how a lot of these little plots. Not unusual. We call it heroic. Well, we don't. Actually, there's a society out of Italy for steep farming. So the Ribera Soccer region, where we're based, 
the whole region, I think it's the only one in the world, the whole region has just been denominated as heroic farming. Wow. It's dangerous. <laughs> wow. It's, it's spectacular. So this is the, Mo, the Mosul on steroids. Right. So you got in there when? Um, thinking so Mr. Lopez, Senor Lopez reached out to you. That's how this project came He chased came about. me down. Peaked your interest, certainly an area you didn't know much about. Correct. And that well, happened right here much. in New York. Um, yeah. He, he, he got me at the New York Wine Experience. Uh, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> chased me down. Um, but yeah, that's how we got out there. So you're making a Godella, which is the white, and a Mencia. Correct. Um, you've never worked with those grapes before, right? Correct. Anything about them that stands out? I mean, Plenty. you made it. There is. <laughs> we don't have time to do that. All right. So I got to move along because I know we got to get you out of here soon, but we got to do a couple of things. That is Alvarado's Hobbs. Um, if you talk to anyone, one of the most exciting uh, winemaking countries is Spain, and that region, Ribera Sacra, um, is you know very hot right now. And leave it to Paul to get you know his ass in there. <laughs> All right, Paul. We got two things we got to do quickly. We have a thing called the wine list. I ask all my guests five questions. Every guest has been asked the same five questions. We've done this over 210 times. You're not leaving here without it. <laughs> Don't dwell on the answers. We got to move quickly. Um, we post these on social media. Our listeners love to know what guys like you and you even more than anyone because you have your toes in so many places. So the first question is, what's Paul Hobbs drinking now? What's in his fridge? What's he tasting? It could be in relation to work. It could be just the season's changing. It could be a weaseling spurt. But what are you drinking now? Right now, Alain Grayo. He just honor, passed away. Uh, uh, Gerard of, and all. Yeah, yeah I knew Alain, and uh, so that's what I'm drinking now. Okay, that's a great answer because if, if he was still alive, which would have been nice, it's a good answer anyway. <laughs> but as a tribute to him. Yeah, um, that's a tribute to Len. All right, that's the way to answer it. Very From thoughtful him. and quick. All right, this is the goofiest question on the list. Favorite wine and food pairing? Obviously something you don't eat every night, every month or whatever, but not what you think is a good wine pairing, but what do you love? What's just a great wine and a great food that works all the time? Well, there's some Asian dishes. Okay. And... I like either Pinot Noirs or Riesling. Sometimes uh, an oak Chardonnay also pairs up beautifully. Um, so Asian food with Pinot or Chard mm. or Riesling? Yes. I thought you would have given me that standard answer of Gewürztraminer, <laughs> but that's okay. All right, so that's a good one. All right. You travel a lot, but you're also pretty busy and you're pretty global. The question is, favorite wine restaurant and our bar? And let me set this up for you. Who's got a great list? Who's got a great vibe? Who you walk into and you feel good about the people? I'm not asking you to list number one, two, or three. And I don't want you to exclude anyone. So when you get back home, how come you didn't mention me? <laughs> but what places anywhere... You know that just do wine well as a hospitality thing. Well, um, you know it's funny because I I, I I probably stay out of the the big city scene, so I'm I'm cause I'm more attached to the like local. a Sebastopol guy. Well, yeah, I mean I can think of obviously there's great wine lists in in, in the big cities, but I I kind of like some of these smaller places. So I'm going to think of Kamloi 
in Sebastopol. What's which it called? Kamloi. Spell it. K H O M L O I. Is that a restaurant? Yes. Okay. And it's it's Thai food. Okay. But they have an amazing Riesling list. Really? But they don't have New York on it yet, so okay. but they've got an amazing German Riesling list. So <laughs> that's that's a cool answer. You have one more that you can think of? Um well Global? Not necessarily. Yeah. I'm thinking Don Julio in 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 Buenos Aires. Okay. Which is a steakhouse. But they have an extraordinary list of wine. Uh, of you name it. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, of Malbec's Cabernet. Don Julio in Buenos Aires. I remember Laura took me to a place, I think, in Mendoza, where she had an apartment. It was an indoor That's outing. 1884, Francis Malman. That's right, before Malman <laughs> became a rock star. You yeah, know, he's but got he a pretty making, good wine list as well. Yeah, I mean, that was a good place to. All right, good on that. All right, fourth question. Favorite all-time wine? I'm very redundant, but when I first structured this question, it was like, Paul, what's the most expensive rare wine you ever tasted? Don't care about that. What are the wines or wine that through your career, and it may be the De Kemp, that had the biggest influence on your life, gateway, you know, changed yeah. the way you think about Epiphany. it? Epiphany. Yeah, I, I put the De Kemp in there, but yep. let's go beyond that. Well, I think um would probably be something from J.J. Prume in my college, my my senior or my master's work. And then I would go to Burgundy was next. I think it's just, I followed a pretty, so was it a Jair or not? Claude Bougeau. And then there was a Corton Charlemagne as well. You're a fancy uh, guy. Well, I mean, this is just, I I, know, I know. <laughs> but they were, they were, they were epiphany. Mo- I mean, just, you're doing a, a lineup of wines. And I, bam, I agree. They, they like, bam. It, it's hard it. not to um, state those wines and, you know, when you were there. Um, that's the way to answer that. Last question, and you should be able to do this. Best wine around 15, 20, 22 bucks. Recommend a red, recommend a white. You can give me a category like Muscadet is a great value. Um, you can give me makers. Um, I always say my kids are in their mid-late 20s. They can't show up at a party now with a crappy bottle of wine, but they're not spending 50. So how do you wow at 18, 15, 22. What do you think of? I'll tell you what. What I like are Argentine Cabernets. Now and they, can, they fall in that price range? You can, you, the can get, you, can, you can get a few really good Cabernets. But they're interesting. They're very interesting. I'll, I'll mention. First time ever on this show somebody said that. <laughs> Is there a maker that comes to mind? I mean, do you make any of them or no? Well, we're a little more expensive. Yeah, like we're at, le- we're at least 20 so or well, 22. That falls in the category. So our Felino would be one of them in the 20 or $22 category. But Is but- Felino one of your wineries or one of your imports? It's part of the Vina Cobos. Okay. It's a brand. So g- good answer. I mean, self-serving in a good way. Uh, Argentine Cab, a Felino, you can get in 20-ish. There's just that no, answers the red. That that cab blows away anything. You got to pay thirty bucks just because. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. and like I said, we post that. Can you give me a white like that? Um, let me think. I want to think of a different part of the world. Anywhere. Yeah. Um, offhand, let me. I mean, I think there's some beauties out of Spain. But I'm, most of them are more than 20. So. What are you thinking? But I'm thinking Godeo. Okay. Yep. As a variety, I'm thinking Godeo. And you can get a lot of them for 20 
20 bucks. Okay, um, so then... We're uh, on the high side, but... No, no, no. I said 15, 20, 22. So yep. I mean 20, 22, 21. So Godeo from Spain. It's a beautiful... It drinks a little bit like a Chardonnay, but it's a little more floral. So I think that would be very yeah. popular. So it could be very nice. You did a more than admirable job in a short period of time because we're running out of time. <laughs> All right. So we got to wrap it up. Before we wrap up, we tasted wine. We tasted the Hillock and Hobbs 2019 Seneca Lake uh, Riesling, which I loved. And now we're going to go back to your roots and home, and we're tasting a Paul Hobbs Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, set me up on all the vitals on the label, vintage year, vintage. Yeah, vineyard. it was 2018, which was a lovely vintage, but atypical in the sense that it was a wet growing season for Napa. I mean, wet through when? Most of the season? I believe or? it. Yeah. Okay. We, we typically don't see rain after May, and then it doesn't rain again until November. And here we had rain well into July. And so it was cool. That made it very late. And so we were actually quite frightened if it was going to be a, if Cabernet was ever going to ripen. But I think it turned out to be a sensational vintage. It was a bumper crop vintage as well, meaning that it produced quite a lot of fruit. So it was a, a tough vintage in the sense that we had to drop a lot of fruit. So it was expensive to make. Drop it on the vine or when you make the on wine? On the ground. You do? Yeah. We, and what let, does that do again? It's sort of like, uh, you know, the concept of weaning puppies and just right. weaning. And, and it helps the other existing. The stronger ones. Right. Okay. Be better. So that's you're losing a lot of fruit, and we you, put over you measure acreage by tonnage or whatever, and you drop. Yeah, okay. we control the the amount of production of an acre of vines will give us, so that there's enough concentration to make a fine, high quality wine. Right. So that's the vintage. Then the vineyard is Nathan Coombs Estate. You own that? Yes. And purchased in twelve is Coombs Coombsville or nothing to do with it's, it? It is. So that's a cooler region. It's one of the cooler of the of the sixteen like sub appellations. I really love it. Yeah. Do you pick later because Late. it's cooler? Typically after the middle of October. Okay. Um, so this is all a steak grown, and what is it? That's a Napa Nathan Coombs. And it's also a it's a Bordeaux blend. It's it's a, we right, call gonna, it Cabernet, but it's a blend as well. So talk to me about the blend: Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, some Merlot, and Petit Verdot. Ironically, no Malbec. The one thing you stake your (laughs) reputation on was Malbec. There's none in there. All right. So we're going to taste this together. All right. I tasted it right away, and there were two things, but I'm going to make you do evaluations. There were two things. One, I picked up some oak that I liked because it integrated nicely. And two, there's something going on that I love about wines that some people have a problem with. There's this green vegetal in there that integrates in so well that is just so prominent in this wine i don't know if i'm right or wrong you're absolutely right but i love that you know because it makes it a more interesting wine so you and i are gonna throw this over the tongue and talk about it so first the color it's a deep dark brooding Mm. purple okay um does this fall in the category of an over-the-top unctuous california parker cab no Good. <laughs> I know that, but I wanted to, I wanted to back you against the wall. So that's the color. Put it up to your nose and give me your nose descriptors. Yeah. Well, definitely that oak, right? There's a hint of there's certainly a hint of oak. Green. Um, there's herbal notes. Herbal. And even black olive and some briar notes. 
which I love. I mean, to me, that's Cabernet, Very much so. that's Cabernet Sauvignon. But there's a, that also is a function of Cabernet Franc. And I love seeing that in Wait, Cabernet. is the green the Franc? Yeah. Okay, I just, I always get hunch, confused. There's a, yeah, so there's, a, there's some of that. And, and, and to me, then you've got the blackberry creme de cassis it's all, all going on. It's all very present, but not over the top, which I love. I mean, this is definitely, when we talk about, I guess when we talk about mouthfeel, this is a medium plus mouthfeel. I mean, this is yeah. a mouthfilling. It's mouthfeel, but it's not, it's not. It's not syrupy or unctuous correct. or whatever. Correct. It's just, yeah. you know, which I like. So it's a big Napa cab, but it's not, you know, over the top. Now, when we talk about palate, do the nose descriptors fall into the palate descriptors, or do we get new stuff too? For the most part, on the flavor f- profile, I think they follow. Both similar, yeah. I think they follow. Where, well, of course, the, the mouth brings something <laughs> different because here you get the, this is on volcanic soils. It, and actually, this, we're on the southern rim of a, of a collapsed volcano. And so these are Ignatius, really rocky site. And I think you're getting that kind of rock. Again, we talked about stony, uh, cobble kind of character. And, yes. And that's, you can feel that yeah. tension on, on the top palate. of everything else, yeah. which is nice that that's yeah. in there. Um, so it's like a good firm handshake. Yeah. And it looks you in the it's eye. It's not a sloppy one, which <laughs> no. Napa's can be, you know, yeah. where it's sweaty and nobody, yeah, you know, it feels, you know, like that guy's got a good handshake. That's a good uh, description because I wrestle with um, Napa cabs and people love different styles. They mm. love over the top. They like restrained. They like yep. in the middle. I mean, this is, you know, done well. Um, mm. Perfect food pairing for a wine like this? Well, I mean... Obviously, beef is always on the table for steak, yeah, burgers, you can't go wrong, but you don't have to. Let's go, that. go out of the box a little. What else would this uh, work? I, I think if you do, I mean, I would go with a, a partridge, for example. Um, you know, certain kind of game birds. By the way, if somebody served me a nice grilled or Venison. roasted salmon. I wouldn't throw Ooh. them out of the room. Well, that would I mean, also, fish and red wine, but salmon's got some body and fat. It's got enough fat. Yeah. Yeah. But the gamier. Like I think pheasant. all the venison, gamey bird, game birds, things of that nature. So as nicely. a side thing, like how much pheasant are you eating a week? Like two, three nights a week? I wish. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You know the th- the thing is, it's hard to get it in, in the U.S., okay. but it's easy to get it in, in Hungary. Okay, so then you now have to follow through on that winery in Hungary, <laughs> and you can eat all the pheasant you want. All right, so that is the 2018 Paul Hobbs Cabernet Sauvignon Nathan Coombs Estate. Um, which is an estate vineyard of Paul's, um, Napa Valley. Um, and that's in the market, right? Yes. We could find that. Um, that's a terrific wine. Thank you for bringing that in. Paul, we have to wrap up. I told you it was going to take a lot of time. We left a lot of stuff on the table, but we did cover a lot of stuff. So let me do a quick wrap up and get some info from you. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods we ask you to do that because when the podcast drops there's paul hobbs right next to you right you know next to your pillow um you don't have to go looking for it follow us on facebook at the grape nation on instagram we're at s ben ruby on twitter we're at ben ruby i know a little confusing but the hashtag the grape nation will get you to both 
As I mentioned, we'll post Paul's wine list, those great suggestions and answers, and I will post the weekly wine sip. I will also try to get some info on some of the other wines like Hillock and Hobbs, um, remind you of the Armenian wine, um, the Cahor, and um, some of the other things. So, Paul, this is a tough question. This may be the toughest question in the interview. Where can we find you and all your wines on social media and online? I mean, what's the best way? People, I think, have been intrigued by Armenia, by Galicia, by South America. What's the best place to tie it all together or tell me where to go? I'm not a good guy when it comes to social media, but uh, websites are always... So I can help you there. If you go to Paul Hobbs Selections... There is a uh, listing of all the wines we discussed, Galicia, um, Armenia. There is a brief intro, and then it takes you to the website. So I would suggest that. And then I would suggest Paul Hobbs, the winery in California, um, which we didn't spend the most time on, but I wanted to get away from that, not diminishing it. But if people want to get to Paul Hobbs, California Sonoma Winery. Where PaulHobbs.com. PaulHobbs.com. Mailing list, all information, great stuff. You can go visit there, right? Yes. All that stuff. Love to um, have you. And then what about you personally on social media? Do you do any Instagram? You want a Luddite. <laughs> Paul the Luddite Hobbs. That's yeah, okay. We you can care. talk to my daughters. <laughs> all right. <laughs> they're like, Dad, you're like in the Stone Age. All right. Paul, I want to thank you for sitting down way longer than you should have. Um, thank you for getting Sam, into you. a deep discussion of everything. My pleasure. Um, it was a pleasure to meet you and to talk about all these projects. I got to give you props because we both know there's incredible wine people in the wine business. Mm. But to your credit, you're doing a lot of stuff in a lot of places with a lot of energy and a lot of curiosity. So kudos to you and only good luck. Um, it seems like you're getting younger than older, so I guess that's part of the formula. <laughs> um, you ain't fat and you ain't wrinkly, so it's working. <laughs> you know. Um, I want to thank our engineers at Heritage Radio and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.